the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor, and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. And we are your answer, that's for sure. I am worldwide, Dr. Bill. You can reach me on the web at am860theanswer.com. That's am860theanswer.com. We're also a talk station, so you can call in and voice your opinion, 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. And you can also go to my website and click uh, Join Me on one of the buttons at drbillradiomd.com. That's drbillradiomd.com. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I had a very good Thanksgiving. This is one of my most favorite times of year. What a great holiday. The expectations are just to eat, drink, and be merry and give thanks for what we have. And, you know, I'm very thankful for where I'm at and my state in life and how I've arrived here, what a journey it's been. And I'm grateful for the fact that I'm a child of England and a citizen of the United States. I can't think of a better time in history and a better place to be. And it's just amazing. And the wonderful family and friends that I have the radio station and our community. Oh boy, it's really neat. I love it. Well, it set a fire in me, folks, and I ran across a little book called The Mayflower, which was written recently by Rebecca Fraser. It was published in 2017, and it's The Mayflower, The Families, The Voyage, and The Founding of America. And it's a really nice historical look at how the Puritans got here and their trials and tribulations. And it also sets some of the history straight. And there were many things that you and I were taught growing up that were not necessarily accurate. And, of course, the revisionist historians would paint the English and the Europeans in general as conquerors and slavers and uh, ruiners of beautiful civilizations that had existed for thousands of years in the Americas. And... Our author sets out and does her best and actually does a good job to change the misconceptions that you and I have about how we got here, about the original colonials, and the effect that they had on the Indians, or the Native Americans as we call them now. At that time, they were considered West Indians because Columbus had discovered or come upon the New World, and he thought he was in India. He thought he was in the western edge of India, 
and he didn't really know where he was at. So he called them West Indians because he was heading west. Now think about it. Think about how the Internet has changed our lives in the past 10, 20 years. Now think of 1492, 1493, 1495, when the word of Columbus' discovery of the New World had circulated throughout Eurasia and the North African continent. And all of a sudden, the world doubled in size. That must have been such a shock and revelation. It would be like when we stepped foot on the moon. So the whole culture of Europe was set into upheaval, not only by the discovery of the New World, but also by the Protestant Reformation, which was taking place. Uh, against this backdrop, we have religious wars popping up. We have wars of conquest. We have rivalries over territories in the New World. And we have to remember that although Henry VIII broke away from Rome and formed the Anglican Church, it really didn't get a good hold on the country until his daughter Elizabeth took over, Elizabeth I. And then following her was her cousin James I. The Stuarts took over from the Tudors. And Elizabeth and James were intent on having one religion and one prayer book in Great Britain. And to that extent, they excluded all else, especially the Catholic prayer book. But there were sects that were breaking away and secretly forming. And among these were the Puritans in the uh, late 1500s, early 1600s. And they believed that the Reformation in England had not gone far enough. And so they started to publish and preach and do the things that people do when they're very passionate about their cause. Guess what? This didn't play well with the court because the court said we have one prayer book. And it wasn't like the English Anglican Reformation was a reformation of you can think and interpret the Bible as you want. It was we're not going to use the Roman Catholic prayer book. Now we're going to use the Anglican prayer book. And this was rewritten by the crown and the hierarchy of the Anglican church. Well, the Puritans quickly fell afoul of the crown and the government in England. And so they spirited themselves away, emigrated to Holland, the Netherlands, and settled in a city called Leiden in a small community of expatriates from England who were passionate Puritans, set up camp in Leiden. Into the mix comes a young man named Edward Winslow, and this is one of the primary foci of the book that Rebecca Fraser has written. Now, Winslow was an idealistic young man, very passionate. He was educated. He had been exposed to all of the forward thoughts and theological reasoning of the age. And, and of course, there was great debate about what the Americans were like and whether the Indians were humans, if they had souls, uh, did they have morals and values and culture. And the English, the more enlightened English, said, well, of course they do. And the English had had exposure, as had a good part of Western Europe to the Indians, probably England and Spain more so than anybody, France, because Indians had been taken captive as traders plied the eastern coast and the northeastern coast in the case of the French and the English, or Indians had signed on to be shipmates and uh, many had ended up back in London 
And there was one fellow named Squanto who had been bought into freedom by an English merchant and had actually lived in London for a number of years and spoke fluent English, and he went back to North America. And we know that Pocahontas, who I think saved Captain James Smith, I think that's who she saved, was regaled and and fated in London as a visiting dignitary, the princess of one of the great tribes of the New World. And so the court of King James had had intimate contact with the Indian culture, and of course she had her retinue with her. And so despite what we think that when the Puritans headed for the New World, it was a completely unknown quantity, that's not true. There had been a significant amount of contact between England and the New World, and there had been an interchange of ideas, and Indians had come into the English society, and Englishmen had stayed there and had traded with the Indians, and so had the French, and of course the Spanish were conquering the the central and southern parts of the Americas. Well, Winslow, fearing persecution and wanting to be a more passionate Puritan, headed off to Leiden in the Netherlands to join this expatriate community of Puritans, people who believed that the English Reformation had not gone far enough. And he was uh, late teens, early 20s. He had had four years of apprenticeship as a printer under a guy named Beale in London. And so he was also familiar with not only the written word, but the printed word. And there was an outlaw press, of course, in Leiden that he helped work at, among other things. And they were secreting Puritan teachings and sermons back into England and wine barrels and casks. Casks were used for shipping goods. And so they were definitely not on King James' list of people he loved. They didn't get any Christmas cards from him, that's for sure. And they even demanded that some of the leaders of the Leiden Church be returned. They made a demand to the Dutch government. And the Dutch government uh, was embroiled in the Thirty Years' War, which was the big religious war in the first half of the 1600s. And by the way, it was the most costly war in terms of lives until the 20th century. Eight million people were killed in the Thirty Years' War. It started off as a conflict between the Protestant northern German states and the Catholic southern German states, the Lutherans versus the Catholics. And it quickly spread to the entire continent, France, England, Spain, everybody was in on it. And the Netherlands had just recently won their freedom from Spain. They were the northern colonies or province that the Spaniards had held. And so it was a real uh, hotbed of activity. And the the Netherlands wanted help from the English. And the English said, fine, you're going to have to clamp down on these Puritans. So the Puritans had an incentive to get out of town, so to speak. And they laid in plans and started looking for investors. You had to have investors back then. And you also had to have a patent, P-A-T-E-N-T, which was like a deed, a legal deed that you could settle in this area of the New World that the English had claimed as theirs. The Virginia colony was one such. And so they thought they were going to head for the Virginia colony or somewhere close to the original landing at Jamestown and set up camp there. And so they snuck back into England. Now, they had bought a little ship 
called the, I think it's called the Stillwell, or I can't remember the exact name of it. I have it here somewhere. But at any rate, they bought a little coastal ship, and they jumped in that and headed back over to England, and they were hiding out and getting ready to leave from Southampton. They bought the Mayflower, which was the best they could do. It wasn't the biggest or the safest ship, and certainly not the in the best of conditions, but they had it. That's what the investors could afford to buy them. So there were a group of investors that backed them. This was an enterprise for the investors. They were looking for people to go to the New World, to set up camp, to farm, to fish, to trade in, in pelts and beaver pelts, which were a hot item in the, in the European couture markets. And so they, they were looking to make money, and the pilgrims were looking to get out of town, the Puritans, to start off a new life in a new land. They saw themselves as uh, the wandering Jews of England, and they were looking for their promised land, and they thought they were God's special people. And it all played into a rather romantic 16th and 17th century fantasy of escaping the old world and escaping the old ideas and escaping the old religion and escaping those nasty Roman Catholics and now the nasty Anglicans who were persecuting us and head off to a new land and make a new life for ourselves. Well, it wasn't easy, but they headed back in the Stillwell to Southampton and they hid out there while the Mayflower was being outfitted. Now, along with this outfitting came a crew. And, of course, they had to decide which members would go on this journey because there were certainly more members in the Puritan community than could be accommodated by a ship of this size. The ship was like 100 feet long, 25 feet wide at its widest berth. It was about 180 tons. And it was seaworthy, but it wasn't any great ship. It was not a big ship, and it was not a ship that had been used extensively for transatlantic crossings. It had been used more of a, as a regional ship. And along with their other little ship, they prepared to go. And, of course, demands were made by the backers. They called themselves, or they were called adventurers in that day. They were like speculators or traders or uh, people who would buy a limited partnership now to try and get a venture going. And demands were made, and there were some misunderstandings and some fights back and forth, but finally they got off. Now their little ship started taking on water, so they had to turn back. And that ship was left, and they crammed in the few people that they could. There were about 50 Puritans that were on the Mayflower, and they also had to have some people who had other practical skills, so they had about 50 non-Puritan members who were craftsmen and tradesmen and had various skills that would be necessary in building a new home and a new world. And they headed off across the Atlantic Ocean, a two-month crossing. They started in September of, seven, of 1620, and they arrived in November of 1620. And on the way, they encountered one of the fall North Atlantic storms and reported waves of 100 feet, 100 feet. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what was reported. And we know that our protagonist, Edward Winslow, was keeping a diary, a log, 
There were some other educated men along with him. And Winslow had actually sent back, after they had been in the colony for a year, Mort's report. This was a, a compilation of what was happening in the colonies and also sort of a sales letter to the investors to keep the goods coming and keeping keeping them alive. And, of course, they didn't have everything they needed, so they had to send back for supplies, and they did as they could. But uh, it was a long, hard journey. So they weren't sure if they were going to even survive this this trek across the North Atlantic in the fall. What a time to go in the North Atlantic. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry, that ship was the Speedwell, not the Stillwell. The Speedwell, and it was a small coastal ship, and then the larger Mayflyer. The Speedwell did not make it. It had to turn back. So they land in the New World in the Plymouth Rock area, which is somewhat romanticized. And they set up camp in an abandoned village on top of a bluff overlooking the bay in the Cape Cod area. And the village had been abandoned because this tribe of 15,000 people had been decimated by European viruses that were accidentally introduced into the New World. There, were, there was no immunity to a lot of the European viruses. And this was not an attempt by the Europeans to wipe the Native Americans, Native, that is, the people who had come there earlier, 10,000, 15,000 years earlier, and settled in the Americas from the Orient, across the Siberian landmass, my wife's cousins. But it did happen, and there were a lot of deaths that were attributed to these plagues of viruses. Supposedly, that's, as, that's the best we can guess, is that there were viruses that the Europeans introduced. And the Native Americans, of course, they sent back bacterial bugs. The New World sent back things like syphilis, which you don't hear much about. And they also sent back tobacco, which was a hot commodity in the 16th and 17th and 18th century. And, of course, that's claimed way more lives than the Indians who were uh, accidentally brought down by European viruses. So they got their payback, folks. Don't think it was one way. So here's this little ship. And, by the way, the women stayed on the ship for a good part of the first year because it was felt they were too frail to be on land and the safety was in question because they didn't know whether the local tribes were friendly or not. And it took them a while to figure out the lay of the land and the politics of the area. And they still had people living on the ship in the harbor. Now, this is hard to believe, but Half of the people who made the journey died in the first year. Two-thirds of the women died in the first year. And it was a, a horrendous situation because, of course, they didn't know the basics of sterility and sanity that we know today. And if you have 100 people living on a ship on one deck, and they were on the gun deck, the gun decks in ships at that time were only about four or five feet high. So you had to crawl as you walk through these areas, and you had 100 people crammed into this one deck. 
the men could go up on top, but the women and the children, it was considered unsafe for them. We don't do that now, of course, but back then, that's the belief that the Europeans had. But the women were strong and resourceful. However, living in cramped quarters, if one person got dysentery, somebody else got it. If one person had a cold, everybody else got it. And keeping the place sanitary and removing the feces and uh, the food debris and maintaining dry quarters, keeping things safe and, and, and edible uh, was a real task. And you have spray coming in all the time. There were gun ports that were closed with little wooden doors, but they were still leaky. So this was a pretty horrendous journey these folks made. And it was, uh, you know, <laughs> very intrepid. I mean, they, they had to be either really idealistic, which I think most of them were, or really not very smart, or shall I say savvy. But at any rate, they made it. They got there. And they forgot to bring seeds, so they didn't have anything to plant. They, their idea was they were, they were going to plant corn. And they were in this predicament. And it made it even more imperative to find out the lay of the land and make some friends in the area with some of the some of the tribes. And Winslow, I'm sorry, it's Mort's relations that he sent back to the investors. That's the name of the of the letter he would send back. Mort's relations. Now, relations at that time meant to tell or to relate. It didn't necessarily mean to be uh, involved with someone or interact. Uh, but it was a, a relating or a telling of what was going on. Well, so in March of 1621, out of the woods walks an Indian, and they had had a few brushes with the Indians before. And the Indian starts talking to them in, in English. And he said, hello, English. His name was Samoset, and he was a minor chief of the Wampanoag tribe. So the Wampanoags were the first peoples to make any significant contact with our settlers in the New World. And he learned English from passing ships from where he lived. And it was his friend Squanto, however, who would be the key to the Pilgrim's prosperity. Squanto was another North American native. He was one of the people who had been taken to London first as a slave and then his freedom was bought, and he lived there and worked. And he became the emissary of the Massasoit tribe, or I'm sorry, Massasoit tribe, and they were the head of the Wampanoags. Now Massasoit was the big chief of the Wampanoags, and so Squanto was his advance man and the interpreter. And Squanto ended up living with the pilgrims for the, the several years before he died. And the Indians, of course, had wars going on on their continent as well. And they were not innocent, as we have been taught. We were not the big bullies. They were after each other as well. And they were kidnapping each other too, although kidnapping was not considered as a serious of a crime at that time, unless you were at war because you'd hold somebody for ransom 
or you'd keep them for a certain period of time just to show that you were bigger and stronger than their tribe, and then you'd let them go. Or sometimes people would choose to stay within the within the other tribe, just like people would choose to stay in London if they were brought there even as a slave once they got their freedom. And so the, the big chief, Massasoit, of the Wampanoag, he's thinking to himself, well, I've just had my whole colony decimated, and apparently where the pilgrims had set up camp was one of his villages that was no longer occupied because three-quarters of his people had died from the viral plague that the Europeans had accidentally introduced. And he knew about the Europeans, and he knew they had guns. Now remember, this, is, this was a, a Copper Age people when they got to the American continent when the Europeans arrived there. This was not an, even a, a, a Bronze Age or an Iron Age people. They were still working in copper and using flint for knives and stones. And, but they quickly recognized, because they were smart people, that, that these Europeans had weaponry and metallurgy that they did not. And they needed and wanted that because they wanted to protect themselves from their enemies, other tribes, as well as conquer and pull together areas just as every part of the world has happened to it. So Squanto became the front man for Massasoit, who was the chief of the Wampanoags. I'm talking about the pilgrims, if you're just joining me. And the interaction between our protagonist, Edward Winslow, and Wampanoag, and their chief, Massasoit, became a great bond that held the colony together through the first year or two. It was a time of, of not much to eat, but the Indians knew the neighborhood. They knew how to get by. They knew where to plant. And they did actually teach the, the pilgrims how to use fish as a fertilizer, so that's a true part of the story. And they even gave the seeds of corn to them so they could plant corn. And by the way, the... Pilgrims didn't have room on their ship for any uh, beast of burden, so they didn't have any cows or oxen or horses. So they pulled the plows themselves, and they built homes out of wooden logs, and they tried to use mud as a, as a ceiling plaster in the first year, and they didn't get it in in time for it to set up hard, and the rains came and washed it out. So basically they had a roof over their head with walls that were blowing cold air through there and uh, it was pretty rough and I, I'm, I'm in admiration of what they did I certainly wouldn't have done that so in 1621 our protagonist met with the great chief of the Wampanoags face to face in March and that's when the whole endeavor took a new course, and things, although not perfect, they started to get better. And within the end of the first year, the women and children who had survived were brought into the colony. And it was a good thing that Winslow was their front man because he was not of the Southern European belief that the Indians didn't have souls, or if they did have souls, they had to be conquered, and and if they wouldn't submit to 
Catholicism or Christianity that they would be used as slaves or killed. He believed that these people had souls, that they had morals and values. And some people in, in Europe even thought that they may be the lost tribe of Israel. So there was a lot of speculation going on. And Winslow felt that we were all descended from Adam and Eve. And as such, we were all human beings. And he treated the Indians with great respect and deference. And he was a gentleman, although he was a devout Puritan. But he brought to the table the necessary skills to interact with the Native Americans in a way that would be productive and in a way that they would be accepted, and not by all the tribes, but at least by the tribes in this area. And they had a monarchical system. The chief was the big man, and although he was elected, he was also the absolute ruler within the limits of power that, that was granted him. And, of course, they had their their god. They were monotheist, and they had their worships and their rituals. And these were all respected by the Puritans, especially with Winslow at the head of the gang. And so it made for a very fascinating beginning, the introduction of these Englishmen into a Native American setting and a Native American culture. And that's not to say that 50 years later the relationships would be good, but at least initially they were good. But I do want to make the point that it's not as the revisionist historians have said, especially with the English. They did not come as racist. They did not come to conquer. They did not come to enslave. And that doesn't mean there wasn't conquest in the hearts of some, and there wasn't a desire to take people and sell them into slavery by some, but they were not considered the, the top of the, of the uh, moral ladder, so to speak, in England. So we were fortunate in that, and it, this is something that we should give thanks for, that, that Edward was able to and was the man who made the initial contact with Massasoit and his tribe, the Wampanoags and that they encountered Squanto, who spoke English, knew the English culture, knew the English way of life, and lived with the, uh, the Puritans for several years until he died and acted as their intermediary with the tribes in the area. By the way, there were even Englishmen who felt that the Indians were born white, but that as they got older as they grew up, that their skin darkened. And it's kind of a, a curious thing, but from our perspective, but remember now, this is, this is a time when there was uh, really not a distinct thing called science. Science and, and religion and the state were all kind of mishmashed together, and they were learning. This was an age of, uh, of innovation, of uh, in inquiry and of intrepid explorers like the pilgrims who were looking to see what there was for them in another part of the world. When I come back, I'm going to tell you the things that I'm most grateful for that the Puritans or pilgrims did for us to make us the country that we are. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. I'll be right back.
With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. The Associated Press has found that the FBI have failed to notify scores of U.S. officials that Russian hackers were trying to break into their personal Gmail accounts. That's despite having evidence for at least a year the targets were in the Kremlin's crosshairs. The AP has conducted 80 interviews with Americans targeted by Russia and found only two cases in which the FBI provided a heads up. Egypt is reading from the attack on a mosque in Sinai Friday that killed 305 people. It's the deadliest attack by Muslim terrorists in the country's modern history and a grim milestone in a long-running fight against an insurgency led by the local affiliate of ISIS. Humanitarian groups are reporting that in Syria today, in the suburbs of Damascus, government forces shelled and dropped bombs from planes, killing at least 19 civilians. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411, 727 327-384- Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET, mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. If you're drowning in IRS debt and can't afford to pay, then you need to take advantage of special IRS tax programs that are available and free yourself from IRS collection efforts once and for all. Due to the financial hardship consumers are facing during the decline in the U.S. economy, the Internal Revenue Service has made it easier to settle delinquent tax problems. An open phone line has been established by Community Tax for consumers to call and see if they qualify. Take down this number or store it in your cell phone, but call the Community Tax Helpline at 800 642 31. If you owe back taxes to the IRS and cannot afford to pay them back, or even if you have years of unfiled tax returns, there's no need to fear anymore. But you have to call the Community Tax Helpline today at 800-642-9531 for the help that you need. Don't take on the IRS alone. They can attack your wages, savings, pension, home, and even your Social Security check. Call 800-642-9531 for your free consultation and to see if you qualify. That's 800-642-9531. Do you have a cracked or broken windshield and full coverage insurance? Do you want a new windshield at no charge and up to $100 cash back on the spot for your damaged windshield? Call Autoglass America today at 813-96-GLASS. They work for you, not your insurance company. 813-96-GLASS. 813-96-GLASS. We turn your broken glass into cold hard cash. Autoglass America. Sunshine and patchy clouds today, high 77, mainly clear this evening, low 58. Then tomorrow should be a nice day with plenty of sunshine and a high of 78. Clear tomorrow night, low 63. Then Tuesday will be partly sunny with a high of 81. Mostly sunny Wednesday, high 81. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Gigi Getz for AM860, The Answer. You did not put 
Radio MD, a little song by ZZ Top about thanking somebody, and of course this is Thanksgiving weekend. What a great time of year, folks. I love Thanksgiving. I love this time of year. I love being alive. I love being an American. I love being a child of England. I love my family. Well, most of the time I love my family. And, you know, I love my profession. I love the people I work with. I love my patients. They've taught me so much. It's been such a great experience. And I also love the radio station and Barbara and everybody that works for her and my man, Bill. So I'm back and we're talking about a book that I read over the weekend. It's called The Mayflower by Susan Fraser. It's a new book published in 2017, and it's a fairly accurate historical look at the pilgrims, the Puritans crossing into the new world and all the trials and tribulations they went through as being religious persecuted folks who had left England and had emigrated to the Netherlands and then made their way to the new world with a stop in England to pick up a ship. And the protagonist, Edward Winslow, who was the energetic, bright, pious, and fervent young man who was uh, attempting to live a life as the first century Christians would have lived, one of nonviolence and uh, interaction and equality for all. And by the way, the, the first year or two of the, of the settlement of the pilgrims was a communal settlement. And of course, communism doesn't work very well. And there were about 50-50 Puritans and non-Puritans, they had to have people along who could do things that they could not. When you start off with 50 people and over half of them are dead in the first year, you're down to 25 people to manage and feed and grow and build. And of course, that's tough to do. You have to have a lot of hands and a lot of different skills to get that done. So they had 50 non-Puritans who had joined their trip, people wanting to escape from England or to start a new life, or who were adventurers. There were also indentured servants who were paying back time and money that they owed as indentured servants. It was a step up from slavery. And these folks had made their way to the New World off the Massachusetts coast and set up camp and had made friends because of Edward Winslow and also because of a man named Squanto, who was a Native American, that had lived in England for a while. You didn't realize that, did you, that there was interaction between the old world and the new world before Jamestown and before the pilgrims arrived in Plymouth. 
So it was an, an exciting time in history. And as I said earlier, a hundred years before, they had found out that their world was actually almost two times bigger than they knew. So they knew the world was round at the end of the 1400s, beginning of the 1500s. But until Columbus sailed and tried to discover the Indies and the Asian continent from the other side and ran into the New World, all of a sudden they realized, you know what? That's not all water between here and Asia. There's a whole nother landmass there. And so the earth became a much bigger place. And not only was there a landmass, but there were people there. There were people living like you and I are. Families, communities, social interactions. And so they were just amazed. So their world had been turned topsy-turvy along with the Protestant Reformation. And as I said earlier, unfortunately for the Puritans, the English church was not interested in reforming to the extent that Lutherans were and other Protestant sects were. They were interested in breaking away from Rome and the Catholic Church. That's what Henry VIII did, and his daughter and his grandnephew Elizabeth and James I carried on the tradition, and they squelched anybody who didn't follow the Anglican prayer book and the Anglican way of worshiping. So these folks headed to the New World as being religiously persecuted. They saw themselves as first-century Christians living a communal life and sharing everything. They believed in peace and love, but they knew that there were times when they would have to defend themselves. They were a, a, a bit of an odd group, and uh, a lot of people in England who found out about their venture and their voyage over thought they were, you know, a little crazy. And I think you would have had to have been a little crazy to take on such an undertaking. But they did it, and they made it. They lost almost half of their people in the first year. But because of the strengths of people like Edward Winslow, they were able to actually send a ship back the next year loaded with furs and fish, which were hot commodities. The fishing was really great. The northeastern coast of the Americas had not been overfished yet, and so there were tons of fish, there were tons of lobsters, there were tons of, of aquatic life and plants in the area, and if you've ever scuba dove up in the Massachusetts or Maine area, you'll know that it is a wealth of sea life. It's so beautiful, too. Jacques Cousteau said his favorite diving was cold water diving, and, and his favorite spot was in Puget Sound, which I've also scuba dove in and up in Maine, and so there's just a plethora of wildlife. You don't think it's there because you think, oh, it's too cold. There's tons of wildlife, beautiful wildlife too. The anemones on the seafloor in the north, they fluoresce. They're fluorescent. It is too cool. So here's this harsh paradise, a paradise full of all these good things that the Puritans had come to the Americas for, but also all of the harsh realities that came with making a venture like this, unprepared, little knowledge, but fortunate enough to run into someone like Squanto, who could interpret and be a diplomat and a front man between the Puritan tribe and the Wampanoag tribe, and this great relationship cemented. 
By the way, that shipload of goods that they sent back the first year, the ship strayed too close to the French border, was seized by the French, and never made it to the investors in England. And a lot of the investors gave up after that and said, this is ridiculous for throwing good money after bad. They were called adventurers, speculators, if you will, who were looking to make a buck in the new world or who had some romantic idea about being part of the establishment of the English colonies and the English way of life and the spread of Christianity. All of this was intertwined, that the English would spread their brand of Christianity. They would also be a stalwart against the Spanish interventions in the New World. And Spain was hated because it was Catholic. Remember, the Spanish had attacked the English 20, 30, 40 years earlier in 1588. The Spanish Armada had tried to conquer the English. They didn't succeed, thank God. It would be a much darker world now if the Latin-speaking people were in control rather than the English-speaking people. And we can see that again today. We can see the chaos that has been wrought by Spain and the leftovers of South America, where only one country is actually a first world country. The rest of the, of the South American continent is, is still struggling to, to find a way into uh, a middle class lifestyle for the majority of their folks. So the English were there for a number of reasons. They were there for their king. They were there to spread their religious beliefs. They were there to trade. They were there to establish and make uh, friends with the locals and to have alliances that they could utilize if they had to face off against the French or the Spanish, and they did multiple times. And all this going on in the midst of one of the largest wars in European history that counted 8 million deaths in the 30 years' war. It's the first half of the 1600s that this this occurred, and... This is just unbelievable, and, and here's this little band of people in the midst of all this chaos of being on the lamb, hiding from the, the crown, running from here, going to there, and somehow they made it. They made it. And I have a lot of gratitude for that. I have gratitude for what these people did to bring their determination and their stick and their comprehension of what it took once they got there to make it, and their willingness to negotiate and to be diplomatic and to accept fellow humans on an equal basis, not only because they felt it was in their best interest to survive, but also because they were good people at heart. They really believed in the teachings of Jesus of the first century. They really saw themselves as first century Christians. And they also brought family values. The people that came to the New World in the Mayflower were family groups. Now maybe some of the family members stayed back home because the husband felt it was too dangerous for the wife and the daughters but took the son. Or maybe someone had been uh, widowed, and it was very common to lose a wife in childbirth at that time. And the women suffered terribly on the ship because they were confined to the lower decks 
the men thinking that they were too frail to be up on the open deck. So we have to admire what they went through and the fact that they survived. And, and Winslow's wife, Elizabeth, actually died the first year that they were there. And he must have been grief-stricken. This was a, a great romance and the great love of his young life. He was a young guy in his early 20s, and, and he lost his wife within a couple of years of being married. And those kind of sacrifices were made not just by Winslow, but by almost everybody. By the way, Miles Standish, believe it or not, Miles Standish went with the Pilgrims. He was on board with them. They needed a military man, and he was a, a veteran of the Holland, the Dutch Wars for Independence at the beginning of the 1600s. And he had been to the Americas once before, and he had some working knowledge of how to militarily deal with the Indians. And they did have some encounters where they fired cannons and shot their guns in the air to scare hostiles away, but uh, they did not engage unless they were actually being harmed, and then they would shoot back to injure or kill. But it's amazing to me how reserved they were. They were even attacked by a tribe early on, arrows flying at them, and all the men had arrows that had gone through their jackets, but no one miraculously had been hit. And it was a, it was a real assault and they had fired their guns to scare them off because they didn't want to start a war at this stage when there was only a couple of dozen men that were capable of doing anything. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the family values that they brought. And by the way, Puritanism didn't last too long. But we still have some vestiges of that sense of community and camaraderie, which is vital to our way of life. We have that sense of family, which we all know is vital to our way of life. And we have the bravery and the forward thinking and the fortitude that these intrepid settlers brought to the new world and their willingness to mix with the people who were there before them and show them kindness and respect. And there are a lot of things we have to be grateful for that the pilgrims did for us and gave to us, scratching out a living in, in a tough, tough time in a tough land, starting off in the, at the beginning of winter with nothing, no shelters, no housing, low on food, and you had to remember that scurvy was a big problem when you sailed across the ocean because they didn't know at that point, or a lot of people didn't know, that you needed some vitamin C from lemons or limes. And, and so that became a, a problem as well. There were a number of things. There was malnutrition. There was uh, plagues. There was, And they even had a, a bubonic plague a few years later in 1625 in London, and that decimated the colony as well because sailors would come over and traders and goods dealers, and they'd bring the, the bacteria with them. So we have all these things to be grateful for that the pilgrims, the Puritans, gave us and brought us and did for us in establishing the Massachusetts colony. But the thing I'm most grateful for, the thing that really stands out above everything else is the Mayflower Compact. They realized before they got off the ship, once they had dropped sail or dropped anchor and unfurled their, furled their sails down, that 
they needed to have a way in which to organize themselves. They needed to have a commitment, a legal and political commitment to each other in order to make it. And so the Mayflower Covenant Compact, whatever you want to call it, was written by a couple of the lettered men and signed by all the non-crew male members, including the indentured servants. So everybody signed it. Everybody was treated as an equal. And, of course, once you got off the ship, you better treat everybody as an equal if you want to make it. And it said very simply, we do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. We're going to form a little government here for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, all those things that they wanted to accomplish, and by virtue hereof to enact, to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws. We've heard that before, right? Just. All this is in, is in our Declaration of Independence, and also some of this is in our preamble to the Constitution. Such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time it shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. I mean, this was not, uh, well, we're going to pick and choose. If, if we're going to make it, we're going to have to vote on something, and then when the majority says this is the way it's going to be, the minority's got to go along, or we ain't going to make it, guys. And so this is the thing that I'm most grateful for. This is what the pilgrims, the Puritans brought to us and left us with, is this sense of self-government, this sense of everybody's involved, whether you're free or slaved, at least in Massachusetts, whether you're rich or poor, and most of these folks were not rich, they were poor. That's why they had to have backers. Whether you were young or old, if you were of age and you could sign and you were a guy, you signed and you agreed. And that was the end of it. And that's, that's what we do. That's what we do. We vote. And then when it's over, if we're not happy with the election, well, we'll wait four years and we can try it again with someone else. But what a, what a wonderful thing they brought and gave to us. This little Mayflower Compact was the beginning of our government, of our freedoms, and of our way of life. There was only one other country in the world at that time that had a democracy, and that was a little postage stamp country called San Marino, which is on the central east coast of Italy. And I went there, and I've talked about that in the past, and they had been a representative democracy for almost a millennium before the pilgrims got to the New World. But this was the first highly publicized and highly organized and highly enacted document and documentation that the Americas had seen and that, that England and much of Western Europe had seen. So that's the story, guys. That's it. I wish I could tell you more, but we are not going to have enough time. Are we, Bill? What are we, about 45 seconds out? But uh, I just want to recount the great things that the pilgrims gave to us for which we must be thankful, Edward Winslow and his skills in, in dealing with the local people, the Indian tribes, the Native Americans, 
Miles Standish, who organized the, the military aspect of it, the families that came, the morals and values that came. And by the way, they ended up splitting up. The Puritans split away from the non-Puritans a couple of years after they were there. But all those things make for just a wonderful, wonderful story. Thank God and thank you, God. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.